0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Should your doctor prescribe a placebo for you instead of conventional medicine? And if she did, would it work? Is the double-blind, placebo-controlled paradigm really the gold standard for medical research? These are just some of the provocative questions I'll discuss with Jeremy Howick, who investigates the mystery of placebos. And advocates for changes in the way medicine is researched and practiced today. Welcome to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere you find your podcasts. It's my pleasure to welcome Oxford philosopher and medical researcher Jeremy Howick to the show today to discuss his new book, The Power of Placebo. Jeremy Howick, welcome to the
0: podcast. Thank you for having me, Renee. It's great to be here with you.
1: Jeremy, let's start from the beginning. How did you begin to have an interest in placebos, and what sustained your interest through 20 years of research?
0: Thanks. I used to row competitively, and when you win medals when you're rowing competitively, they sometimes pull you off the podium, make you pee in a bottle and check if you've taken any banned substances, you know, steroids you shouldn't be taking, Under those circumstances, the coaches are very clear that you should be careful when you take any routine medication, because some people who get positive tests claim, perhaps sometimes true, I don't know, that they were just taking a, for example, an allergy medication that their doctor gave them, which led to a test, a positive test result. At the same time, I developed an allergy to a cat my mother bought for my sister. I went to the doctor, they poked me 30 times and confirmed that that I was allergic to cats. And they prescribed a a nasal spray which had the ingredient corticosteroid in it. I checked very carefully as my coaches instructed me. And I was scared that I couldn't take it um, for fear of getting tested positive. So I was trying to contact the sport Canada to find out if it was in fact a banned substance and it would lead to a positive test. Turns out it wouldn't do, but I didn't know, Uh, but they were taking their time to reply. In the meantime, my mother suggested I visit a herbal doctor to see if they could help cure my allergies. I didn't believe it would work, but I said, well, it wouldn't hurt perhaps, so I went there to the herbal doctor expecting crystals on the wall and so on, but it was nothing of the sort. It was just a cleaner than most doctors' uh, offices. And instead of taking 10 minutes or so, we spent 45 minutes discussing not just the allergy symptoms, but also the stresses associated with high-level competitive rowing. In the end, the doctor prescribed a few things. One, she said, wear a hat and scarf, which is frankly just common sense in the winter in Canada. But common sense, as you know, Renee is not always common. The second thing she said was drink ginger tea. I didn't believe it would work, but I thought, well, ginger tea couldn't possibly harm me. After all, millions, if not billions of people drink tea with ginger in it over the, across the world. And in fact, I could count it as one of my five fruit and veggie day. So I drank the ginger tea and with, within three days, my allergy symptoms all but disappeared. That got my geeky mind uh, worrying and I decided I wanted to find out if ginger tea and things like it could help. You know, answering questions. The main one being: Was the ginger tea a placebo, or was there something in it? Um, that led to all kinds of other questions: What counts as good evidence? What is a placebo? And even if ginger tea was a placebo, how would you find out? Because you can't really make it design a placebo controlled trial of ginger tea how do you make something that looks like ginger tea tastes like ginger tea smells like ginger tea but is not ginger tea um that's what got me going that and a few other things got me going renee i did my phd in evidence-based medicine got a job at the center for evidence-based medicine and now I work at, the, at a medical school, Leicester Medical School, as well as at, at Oxford, where we're transforming the medical school curriculum to teach um, future doctors to communicate better, not to prescribe placebo pills necessarily, but to communicate in ways that will help patients.
1: Well, uh, Jeremy, um, as you know, I'm talking to you today from Israel, where the population is under great stress with rockets uh, coming in from Gaza, targeting civilian centers, um, civilians evacuated from parts of the country that are under the greatest attack. And so many families whose loved ones, including babies and little children, are still being held hostage as well as widespread
0: bereavement.
1: What can you tell us about how placebos might be used to ease the psychological suffering during this war?
0: Yes, that's um, obviously a relevant question, almost Im- impossible to avoid. And my position is that I'm against all um, civilian deaths, um, including, I'm not comparing the two, but the the attacks and the hostages against Israeli civilians are inexcusable, unjustifiable. And- but,
1: but we're not here to talk about politics. I'm Wondering whether in, in helping people cope with the stress that they're under, can placebos be part of the treatment or the support?
0: Yes. Yes. Oh, thank you for clarifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I wouldn't put so... you in
1: that position. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I should, it's not, not, not laughable. It's, so, so I wouldn't want to claim that placebos are going to solve the huge problems being faced um, at the moment that would be a step too far. Um, If we move to something a bit more general, can placebos help people who are experiencing anxiety in general, depression in general, pain in general? Then the answer is yes. Um, The placebo has been studied more than any other medication in the history of medicine and been shown to have a, a modest to small average effect for things like pain, depression, anxiety, as well as other things that, you know, functional things as well, immune function and so on. And over the last 20 years, they've found out a lot about how placebos work. So the, the answer to the general question of how can, can placebos broadly construed, have a positive influence on emotional distress? Then the answer is yes, they can. And they know how that works.
1: Uh, We've uh, always heard that the gold standard for drug research is a placebo-controlled study in which neither patient nor doctor knew who was getting the experimental drug and who was getting a placebo. Explain why you think there's a better standard.
0: Yes, great question. So if we take, my view is in a way paradoxical, in clinical practice, if you're going to see your doctor... In routine practice, in other words, not as part of a clinical trial, then what you want is a doctor who can elicit, who can induce placebo effects, um, sometimes without, often, more often than not, without placebo pills. We can discuss that in a moment. But if you park routine practice and move into the realm of clinical trials, it's often stated that the gold standard is a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. Now, that is only true if you don't already have an existing treatment. Very sadly, the World Medical Association Declaration of Helsinki used to say that you should not use placebo-controlled trials if there is an existing treatment. Um, but they changed that position later on. Let me explain with, a, with an example, a real example. There was, um, we, we know that steroids can improve survival from alcoholism-induced liver disease. Um, So steroids work for that. They reduce mortality by about 20%. So a new new treatment came along for helping to cure and treat alcohol-induced liver disease. But instead of comparing the new treatment to a steroid, they compared the new treatment to a placebo, which means that those patients in the clinical trial who were allocated to the placebo arm we're getting worse treatment than they would have if they had compared the new treatment with a known treatment, namely in this case, steroid treatment. Um, th- they claim this is okay for what they deem to be good methodological reasons, but they don't tell you what those methodological reasons are, and when I've looked into them as part of my research in this area, Renee, I found that there, there are no good methodological reasons to use a placebo-controlled trial when you have an existing treatment. To, t- to use a more um, um, lay example, what what people wanna know isn't which treatment is better than placebo. What they wanna know is, from among the available alternatives, which is the best treatment? Just like you'd wanna know, you don't wanna know which, is, which car is best compared to nothing. You wanna know which car is best compared to the other cars within your budget range. Does that make sense?
1: Perfect, yes. Makes perfect sense, absolutely. I wonder why we don't do that.
0: I don't know. Again, they state that it's okay, that you can use placebo-controlled trials even when you have an established proven therapy. Um, They they say when there are methodological reasons that demand the use of placebos. Um, But then there are no good methodological reasons. Of course, sometimes the supposed established treatment is not really proven. So the sometimes commonly used treatments don't have good evidence, but that doesn't that that, that doesn't count, right? Because they say that the placebo-controlled trials are okay even if there are established proven treatments. Now, if you um, were to back me up against the wall and ask me why you do this, I would say that they are commercial interests. Um, and this is without going into any conspiracy theories or anti-capitalist statements, I mean, I like stuff as much as the next person, and I'm grateful for all the stuff I have. That being said, if you had a new treatment, it's much more difficult to show it's better than the existing treatment than it is to show it's better than a placebo. That's my suspicion of why they use, why they carry on using placebo-controlled trials. The other reason is... Um, uh, is oversimplification of medication. So they, they they think that you need to get a pure, absolute effect of the drug compared to placebo. But that that's uh, it's a, there are too many interactions to get that. Those I are my see. two um, explanations.
1: Well, tell us about what makes a powerful placebo. What what are some of the factors that enhance a placebo's effectiveness?
0: So the placebo, like a sugar pill um a small sugar pill the pill itself does not have an effect um i mean sugar too much sugar is not good for us and i'm probably guilty of eating too much of it myself but the amount of sugar in a small pill is uh, next to, to negligible so what causes the effect if someone takes a sugar pill and their pain for example is reduced it's not the pill it's their beliefs that are associated with taking the pill combined um, or enhanced by the instructions of a trusted empathic clinician, a doctor who tells you this is going to work, this is going to help you. These words from the clinician can, first of all, put the patient at ease. And we know, of course, from a separate body of research that reducing anxiety and inducing relaxation, can have all kinds of benefits from reducing pain and depression to improving immune system function. And then when the patient develops positive expectations, oh, this pill's going to make my back pain go away, that can activate the human body's amazing inner pharmacy. And that's not an exaggeration to say that the human body does have a pharmacy. Um it would be an exaggeration to claim that the pharmacy can cure everything. That's that's not what I'm saying, but you can produce endorphins and dopamine. And of course, endorphin is just the combination of two words, endogenous, which means made by the body, and morphine. So the stuff people shoot up on the street, uh, morphine, is almost identical to the morphine that your body makes, endorphins. Hope I've answered your question.
1: Yes, absolutely. You mention in the book that uh, there are some other aspects about uh, how uh, the placebo is presented, for example, if it's more invasive uh, or having to do with the color and the size and the branding of a pill. And uh, it made me think about, uh, some of the popular medications now, for example, uh, um, the obesity medications—they're actually diabetes medications—but uh, they're being used for weight loss. That have a lot of what you call in the book uh, ritual to it. They have to be refrigerated. They are—they are invasive. They're a shot. Um, and not an injection. So uh, talk about that a little bit. I found that fascinating.
0: So that's a, an important point. So that, that's one reason why people don't like, when, when patents run out, they move to the generic version. And the generic version of Prozac, for example, is fluoxetine. Now Prozac sounds much more powerful than fluoxetine because it was designed to sound powerful. Pro sounds positive. When you use the word Zed, it sounds powerful. This is what psychologists, you you probably know more about than I do, but they developed the name on purpose to to sound like it's gonna work. Um, Whereas the generic drug, they often find that the generics don't work as well, although they're identical chemically to the the patented versions. uh, when they did a, a test once with painkillers, um, some of them had a brand a brand name, others were generic names. The, the brand name works better. Some they've done another trial with um, more expensive painkillers that costs costed two dollars and fifty cents compared to ones that costed ten cents each. The more expensive ones worked. And this is replicated in expensive restaurants. I mean, they turn the lights down though, they make you wait a long time for your food. Um, but at the end of the day, how much better does it taste than um, your mom's home cooking or or a good burger or pizza? Um, I, m- I might be going a bit too far there if you're a, if you if you're a gourmet, and I apologize for that. No, but that, I I agree. A,
1: a lot of a lot of the uh, appreciation and the enjoyment of food is in the presentation. I think that's a very good uh, comparison. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, and then in terms of invasiveness, of course, the least invasive is a pill. And the most invasive is surgery. So placebo surgery is a full ritual. They even call the surgical theater a theater. Um, The surgeons are the most eminent, skilled, um, looked up to people in the hospital. I mean, people... They command people and I'm not denigrating them, by the way, there I've got some friends who are phenomenal surgeons. I could never do what they do. I couldn't even imagine doing the amazing things they do for, for human beings. So none of this is against, um, what, what, what doctors do. Um, I want to make that point clear. It's just that we can use placebo effects to enhance what we're doing with, with modern medicine. Um, so the surgical theater involves the letting of blood. Now, whether someone's religious or not. The letting of blood in Judeo-Christian religions is very meaningful. It's impossible to escape that meaning. Someone's lying in a prone position. They allow the surgeon to cut them. Um, so this, um, the, these, this invasive procedure can induce powerful placebo effects. And some, not most, surgery is not a placebo, but some of it is. I'll give you two examples. Did a, a, a trial. A doctor in Harvard was doing vertebroplasty, so to fix to fix broken vertebrae. So not, not, not nothing you know, psychosomatic. They do an X-ray. There's a crack in the vertebra, one of the vertebrae. And they do something called vertebroplasty, which involves injecting cement, a kind of glue to glue it back together. So with one patient, a very clever doctor did the procedure. The patient got better, came back for their checkup six weeks later. The doctor checked and realized he made a mistake. He injected the cement into the wrong vertebra, not the one that was... Broken, but it still worked. So he did a he did a full trial comparing, you know, real vertebroplasty where you inject some cement compared to fake vertebroplasty where you just poke the person with a needle in the back but don't inject any glue. The fake one worked as well as the real one for low back pain. Other trials have replicated this with with knee knee surgery, for example, where they can see mechanical damage. And this is a point that brings up, an, uh, this brings up an important point with placebos that people think oh, was just psychological and nothing is just psychological, not a single thing, anything you think, um, you can view it in the, there's something happens in your brain. So these mechanical things, uh, n- severe knee problems, uh, uh, back issues that you can see on, 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 a, on an x-ray can be helped by placebo treatments.
1: So uh, what percentage, I don't know if you can estimate this, but what, what percentage of every medicine's effectiveness is due to the placebo effect?
0: So earlier on, a famous American doctor called Henry Knowles Beecher claimed that thirty, about a third was due to, to the placebo effect on average. His was an overestimate because he looked at the response after a placebo and counted that as a placebo effect, which is a mistake, of course. I mean, I might have a headache and then take a placebo and my headache might go away. It's not necessarily because of the placebo. After that, in 2001, some Danish skeptics and fantastic researchers, um, Hrobyartsen and Goetje, um, looked at trials that had compared what happened to people who took a placebo with what happened with people who didn't take any treatment at all and found there was almost no placebo effect. And they, so they corrected Beecher's error, but in doing so, it introduced an, an error of their own. Um, the main error was ignoring heterogeneity. So for some things, even in their skeptical study, placebos did have significant, statistically significant effects, not as big as Beecher's. The second thing is, there's no such thing as an untreated group. I mean, if you're in a clinical trial and they don't give you anything, you still get the follow-up, you get the communication with a doctor, you get leaflets, you might start treating yourself because they're measuring you and so on. And these things would tend to lead to an underestimate. So the truth is somewhere in in the middle. It's uh, the placebo, the average placebo effect of medications. The answer is, on average, it's not huge. And it depends on what condition we're talking about.
1: Uh, Can you say more about that? What, what conditions are more placebo and what are less?
0: The most studied condition is pain, back pain, knee pain, osteoarthritis pain. And they've known how placebos work in that area for, for years now. They did some great studies showing that um, they, gave, they gave a bunch of people placebos, but they gave some of them an opioid antagonist, so a drug that, would, um, that prevents opium from you know, opiates from, from working. And those who had the opiate, opioid antagonist did not experience placebo effects, whereas those who did not have the antagonists did. So the way placebo painkiller works is by activating, activating the body's inner pharmacy to produce um, endorphins. That's the, a very a simplistic explanation. Um, with depression and anxiety, it, it's similar. Um, the the placebos activate the body's inner pharmacy. Um, those are the things, it works the best, but even for things like knee pain and back pain, where there's a physical damage, um, the placebo surgery can activate the body's wound healing cascade. So given the message that something's happened there, the body does physical things, more blood vessels, um, tissue that can help repair things. But so to answer your question, Pain, anxiety, depression are the most, uh, the the most, they work quite well for those in most people. Then, if you go to the, there are some radical, more radical um, anecdotes, which we can't confirm that they're evidence based, where people, you know, recover from very serious illnesses um, following from placebo treatments. The most famous example, perhaps, is Mr. Wright, who had. Tumors and received a medication called prebiotics, which he believed powerfully would 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 cure him. And then he he took the medication, and it, 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 his tumors allegedly shrank. But then he found out that it was a quack remedy, and they came back. Um, but again, these are anecdotes; we shouldn't put too much stock in them. But to answer your question, pain is the most important, condi- most common condition, most evidence based condition. But there are other other ones as well. Um, placebo treatments have been shown to influence immune function. Um, if and other physical things you can measure
1: There's a, a remarkable uh, point that you make in the book which is that you don't have to lie to patients uh, when you use a placebo they sometimes or often I don't know which improve even when they know they're taking a sugar pill talk about the examples you bring in the book
0: Yes so The common objection to using placebo pills in routine practice, so not clinical trials, but your doctor, you see on a regular basis, sorry, is that it would involve deception. You must lie to the patient, say this is a powerful treatment when in fact, it's a sugar pill. I've done a meta analysis of trials where they've given people placebos and told them it's a placebo saying things like here is a, um, it's a, this is a sugar pill. It's a placebo pill, like a sugar pill that has been known to help some patients like you do to mind, body, self-healing processes. And that they have control groups where people don't get anything at all. And sometimes these seem to be almost as powerful as deceptive placebos. In one dramatic example, Linda Buonono had such bad IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, she could barely leave her house. She took the open-label placebo as part of a trial, got better for the first time in years. Um, And at the end um, of the trial, they they no longer gave her the placebos. Her IBS came back. She went to the doctor to ask for some placebos by name. They said, no, we can't give you those. It's unethical. (laughs) So these are some examples where open-label placebo works. But I go even a step further. Um, Placebo effects, Renee, Um, Like I said, the effect of the placebo is not because of the ingredients in the pill. It's because of the communication of the healthcare practitioner, the doctor, the surgeon. So this communication, this positive, empathic communication can be used without a pill. And in fact, uh, because it does work, because it does help patients, I think it's an ethical requirement for doctors to engage in empathic, positive communication. I also believe that it's uh, that you can give open label placebos in some cases. For example, you know, IBS. Until recently, there wasn't anything that really worked. Why not try an open label placebo if people are willing to take it? Another example is um, post operative pain. Uh, people take painkillers after their operations. A small fraction of them develop dependence to, to painkillers, and this can be terrible, lead to terrible things, including for again a small proportion of those death. Why not um, replace half the um, painkillers with placebos and tell the patients, ask them if they're willing to, if that could reduce the chances of becoming dependent, but have the similar painkilling effect, and this would have to be shown by the way, why not try it? Yet another example, um, you know, uh, communication for antibiotics are overprescribed, way overprescribed. Some doctors claim that they they do a test on the patient. They've discovered that the patient's illness is caused by a viral infection. They know absolutely that the antibiotics can have no effect on a viral infection by definition. If the patient insists, in those circumstances, why could a doctor not ask the patient if they're willing to try an open-label placebo? Um, So I think there are circumstances. So I think that The positive empathic communication should be ethically required, and there are some more limited circumstances where an open label or honest placebo could and I think should be at least tried more seriously.
1: So uh, you explained that there are characteristics of the healthcare setting and the uh, physician-patient relationship and characteristics of the placebo itself, uh, and the environment uh, that impact the the power of a placebo. What about a personality or other individual characteristics of the patient? Are there some people who are more likely to respond to placebo?
0: That's a great question that I often get because I work in a university setting where people are much better educated than the average, and they usually tell me, Jeremy, you know, a placebo wouldn't really work for me because um, that's for a suggestible, uneducated pe- educated people. And they've tried for decades to identify characteristics of placebo responders. And they basically failed. And as proof that they've failed, drug companies still use what they call placebo run-in periods they give a bunch of people a placebo to find out who responds to a placebo and they exclude those who respond to placebos in order to, um, you know, you could say, in my view, inflate the effect of the drug. Um, Now, if they could predict who would respond to the placebo, they wouldn't have to spend the money on the placebo run-in periods. That being said, there have been some recent limited studies showing that people who are more suggestible, so people who are empirically more likely to be hypnotizable could be more, um, you know, responsible, more responsive to placebos. But overall, it's been a, a, a dead-end research avenue.
1: Uh, uh, finally, Jeremy, you argue that uh, fee-for-service healthcare fails. Because it doesn't incentivize patient outcomes and it disincentivizes spending time with patients. What system of healthcare would you prefer to see?
0: Yes, fee for service. The, the more treat, tests and treatments a healthcare provider provides, the more money they make. So they're incentivized. I'm not saying that's their only motivation, but they are factually incentivized by treating a lot. And, and you should know that. Met, uh, iatrogenic deaths are the third leading cause of death in the U.S. So we take too much medicine. I think few would deny that. Most people in the Western world, developed countries, take too much medicine. The alternative is value-based health care, where people are reimbursed based on patient real patient outcomes. And there are examples of this. For example, Kaiser Permanente separates the... Um, the, the The provider from the payer, so they' they're all working together. Let me explain you using um, a story, which is perhaps an oversimplification, but but it provides your listeners with an idea of, of, of what what could happen and what is happening in some areas such as uh, Kaiser Permanent doing a great job. I, I'm not getting paid by them, by the way. Um, so in ancient China, allegedly, I haven't found a hist- found a historical source, but it's often reported that in ancient China, doctors w- would be paid a retainer. So you give them a monthly fee as long as you were healthy. The moment you fell ill, you stopped paying the doctor. This made the interest of the patient, the patient's health, directly aligned with the doctor's um, payment. So then it becomes in the doctor's interest to make the patient healthy. Um, So you can see what the doctor would do in those circumstances. They'd encourage lifestyle changes that would preclude the need for treatments. And when they they decided to give tests and treatments, only those that were going to lead to improved patient health, not those that were unnecessary. So and this kind of system is called you know, value-based healthcare, and it is cropping up in places like the, the UK, the US. There are, of course, big challenges with it. So if, if this kind of thing happens, doctors will be incentivized to only take healthy patients. But there are ways to overcome that by requiring that they deal with a, a specific catchment area, for example.
1: The book is The Power of Placebos. Thanks so much for talking with me today, Jeremy.
0: Renee, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.